All right, thanks everyone so much. Welcome. Uh, if, you're here, you're, if you're here for the first time or the thousandth time, welcome to everyone streaming online. And uh, of course, I think the pastors, they say they're streaming online. Uh, so hello to y'all. Hope y'all are having a great, uh, great trip and, and some restful time. Um, there was a small country church that they'd had the same pastor for, you know, for decades, it seemed. And they got a new pastor uh, when, the, you know, when the other one retired. So they got a new pastor, and the new pastor comes in, and he delivers the first Sunday sermon, and he knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was awesome. And everybody was moved, and, and they were excited uh, you know, to hear the new words of the new pastor, and it was a great thing. And so they're all talking about it, congratulating him. The next week, uh, he comes up, and he preaches the exact same sermon. I don't mean the same topic, the exact same sermon, word for word, Start to finish, same inflection, same everything. I'm like, okay, well, this is weird. Uh, it was really good the first week. It's you know pretty good the second week, I guess. And so then the third week comes and he does it again, the exact same sermon again, word for word, exactly. And so finally the, the elders and the deacons, they pull him aside and they said, uh, hey, what's up with this same exact sermon all the time? You can't do that. We can't, we can't have that here. And he says, well, as soon as y'all get that one right, I'll bring a new one. And so, <clears throat> so it's always interesting when you get to teach on occasion like I do, you know. I'm, I'm amazed uh, at our pastors and, and the pastors, you know, I've grown up in church and my childhood pastor was a great week-to-week teacher. And I'm always amazed that people that can, that can, that can bring a good word and, and a good sermon week after week, it's really amazing. And, it, and it's, it seems like quite a challenge. I was talking to Pastor Peter about it and he's like, in some ways he thought it was easier because... You know, you know what works, you know, you, you get into a rhythm, you, uh, you get into studying, but I'm not, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but it seems, you know, he said that would make sense. Well, when you get to teach on occasion, like I do, you know, I've taught up here once or twice a year, maybe for the last years, couple of years, and, um, and what happens is, is I usually, I don't know how y'all work, but I, I have like one or two major revelations every couple of years, maybe. You know, so it's not like, I mean, I hope to be on a steady path of growth spiritually, but these big moments in my life are these big spiritual awakenings, these great awakenings, if you call them like a, like a gut shot, really, um, doesn't happen except maybe once a year, once every other year, something like that. And so when you, when you teach on occasion, you share those stories. And usually for me, those stories are very emotional. And, uh, and it, because those are the moments in my life where my life changed. And so I get a little bit of a hard time that whenever I speak up here, I shed a tear or two. Um, and uh, today may not be any different because I have such a story because it's been a while since I, I spoke. So I'm not gonna tell it now. I'm gonna tell it later because if I open with that, I'm not sure I'll finish. So <clears throat> we've been talking about thankfulness, you know, and Pastors uh, Crystal and Pastor Mark, and they've done a great job kind of laying the foundation of us transforming our hearts and our minds to being more thankful people, being thankful people every single day, thankful for the little things, thankful for all the things that come our way. But I, thought, I find thankfulness to be a very difficult topic, especially thankfulness in America, because we have so much. We are so wealthy. The poorest among us are high above the average standard of living throughout the world. I mean, literally, you can find stuff on the street that people would fight for in, in other parts of the world. And it's, a, and it's a difficult topic because, let's be honest, our, in our society, um, we expect a certain amount of ease. We expect a certain amount of luxury. We are 
irritated, disappointed when the things that we want don't come our way quickly. We're, we're frustrated. And so I find thankfulness a really difficult topic to talk about, especially here in America. And this is the only place I really talk about this stuff. So, because um, there are Christians in the world today they're literally, they're praying to God that they will live another day, that the tyrannical re- regime or the, uh, the communist dictator that's not allowing Christianity, they're, they're praying and begging that God will let them live another day so that they can worship and so that they can serve him another day. There are people praying for their children to have food or water so that they won't starve to death. And when, they, and when these things come to pass, when they get that cup of rice or that, or that sip of water, they're thankful, and they're thankful in a way that makes our thankfulness seem superficial by comparison. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, the, 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 what we expect in America and what, we, um, and, and what we're thankful and what we can't even muster thanks for. You know, we can't even, we forget, we forget to be thankful for crap. And people all over the world, just every little thing that comes their way, they are incredibly thankful for. So, here in America, you know, we may ask for the latest gadget, the latest uh, cool thing that comes out, maybe the iPhone 7, you waited in line and prayed that God would give you a good space in line, I don't know, um, or, we, or that latest gadget, or we pray for the latest, coolest car, you know, that's Tesla for those people that, that don't know or don't care. Um, I really don't care, but it is kind of a cool car. So, you know, these are the kinds, of, and we expect, we have an expectation that these things will come our way, that not only should we have them, but in some way we deserve them. We're entitled to them. And, uh, and that's, a difficult, that's a difficult thing. So before we go too far into that, I, wanna, I always like to learn how people grow. What is it that moves you from one phase to the next? What is it, you know, hopefully you're, you're kind of always growing. Maybe you're reading. Maybe you're doing a lot of prayer or worship on your own. You're doing things and you're growing and it could be the same at work. What is it that, how do you grow? So how many of you, and I do need a little, just some hand raising one at a time. How many of you like your hand held and you're encouraged the whole way, that, that things are going great, that you're doing a great job, good job, you, know, you're, you're, you need constant encouragement. Who, maybe you like to skip through daisies, you know, whilst holding hands with someone. Only two, come on, there's like, I see a bunch of millennials right here, it's de- pretty much the definition of a millennial. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that, and there's nothing wrong with it, but that's what we like, that's, you know, th- those are what people want. And so how many people just need a good, swift kick in the butt? Me too. I, Neil, I know we're on the same page with that. So we need a good swift kick in the butt. That's me. That's what I need. That's what I require. That's why when I get to teach on occasion, I share these stories because I have received a swift kick in the butt. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And so one of the, you know, going into that, how do we remain thankful in any circumstance that you might find yourself? How do you remain thankful? How, to, how do we do that? And what change, what thing do we need to understand and know before we can do that? You know, I always ask myself, you know, when I talk, think about people growing and think, think about people staying in the faith and remaining in the faith, you know, I think about people that, that leave the church, not, I mean, not this church. When people leave this church, I get sad. But when they leave the church, when they leave the faith, my heart breaks. And it's a, and it's a heart-wrenching time. So, and I believe that the source of our being thankful in anything in everything that we do, and this is universal, all of us can, can have this if we, can, if we remain thankful in everything that we do, and then we will never leave the faith because if we embrace one thing, we'll, never, we'll have no choice but to remain in the faith, and that is embracing wretchedness. 
I know that's a weird thing to say, especially talking about thankfulness. You're like, man, Thanksgiving's on Thursday. Let's, uh, let's try to lighten it up a little bit. But embracing our own wretchedness, what does that even mean? And when you read throughout Scripture, you see all the great people of God, they came to this revelation of who they were. They came face-to-face with their very nature, and they were ashamed, and they were heartbroken. You have people like David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Peter, and Paul. These guys came to this point of wretchedness. They came face to face with who they were and found themselves to be wretched. So let me pray before we get too far. Father, I thank you for this amazing opportunity. I thank you that you would allow me to do this, Father, that our pastors would allow me to do this, Lord. I pray that while they're away, that they would be refreshed, that they would be restored, Lord, that they would uh, come back super ready and excited uh, to take us as a church to the next level. Father, I pray that right now you would focus our hearts and our attention on what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so embracing wretchedness. It's a weird title, I know, but this, is a, this has been a process for me, a couple of year process. So I, want, uh, I wanted to share it with you and, um, and I wanna really kind of dig in to wretchedness and thankfulness. So this is about 95% kick in the butt and like 5% thankfulness. So it's a little bit of a, a long road to get to that, that thing of thankfulness that we're actually gonna talk about, but it is there. There's no skipping, there's no daisies. There are just, uh, there's just something that if we can grab hold of this, you will be thankful uh, and you will stay in the faith because once you come to grips with this, once you come to grips with your own wretchedness, you have no choice but to remain you know, but we're all in different places along the journey. I know that, I mean, there are people in here that have been Christians for a few days, maybe, I don't know, maybe a few hours. I don't know how good your morning was, but, uh, you know, you've been, you've been Christian for a very little while, and then there's people that have been Christians for many, many years. Um, I'm, I'm pushing being a Christian for 30-something years, so I've been doing this thing a while, and we're all at different um, points along that journey. And so uh, there are two kind of extremes of people in the faith. There are people that think that because they are Christians or because they have chosen this faith that they will live a charmed life, that that life will be great and it will be skipping through daisies. It will be, it will be wonderful and we will be, and, and we will be above all others. All we survey will be ours and we believe that because we've chosen the faith, because we've chosen this faith that we will be blessed and or we will live a, live a blessed life. And there's some validity to that just not sure the American definition of blessing is always lines up with God's definition of blessing. And then there are people right next to those people in this very room that see the weight and the burden of being a Christian more than they can bear. It weighs them down. It is like a heavy burden. They, they know that they can't live up to the thing which God expects of us. They know that they can't be holy. They know that they will continue to fail. They know that they can't do it and it feels so heavy to them. And so they think, what's the point? They don't even understand, why do I why, why keep trying if it is just going to continue to lead to my failure, my own ruin? Um, there was a French priest named Michael Coyston. He, uh, he wrote a book of prayers. And this prayer, it's a, it's a little bit long, but I think it is so real and so true um, about how we are in our hearts once we start to deal with sin and once we want to to change and become and, and kind of leave sin behind. And uh, this guy was a priest and he had committed his entire life. So uh, I've fallen, Lord, once more. I can't go on. I'll never succeed. I am ashamed. I don't dare look at you. And yet I struggled, Lord, for I knew you were right near me, bending over me, watching. 
But temptation blew like a hurricane, and instead of looking at you, I turned my head away. I stepped aside while you stood silent and sorrowful, like a spurned fiancé who sees his loved one carried away by his rival. When the wind died down as suddenly it has arisen as it had arisen, when the lightning ceased after proudly streaking the darkness. All of a sudden, I found myself ashamed, disgusted with my sin in my hands, the sin that I had selected the way a customer makes his purchase, the sin that I paid for and cannot return for the shopkeeper is no longer there. This tasteless sin, this odorless sin, this sin that sickens me, that I have wanted but want no more, that I have imagined, sought with, played with, fondled for a long time, that I have finally embraced while turning coldly away from you, my arms outstretched, my eyes, my heart irresistibly drawn, this sin that I have grasped and consumed with gluttony. It's mine now, but it possesses me like the spider web holds captive a gnat. It is mine. It sticks to me. It flows in my veins. It fills my heart. It had slipped in everywhere as darkness slips into the forest at dusk and fills the patches of light. I can't get rid of it. I run... I run from it the way one tries to lose a stray dog, but it catches up with me and bounds joyfully against my leg. Everyone must notice it. I am so ashamed that I feel like crawling to avoid being seen. I'm ashamed of being seen by my friends. I'm ashamed of being seen by you, Lord, for you loved me and I forgot you. I forgot you because I was thinking of myself and one can't think of several persons at once. One must choose and I chose and your voice and your look and your love hurt me. They weigh me down. They weigh me down more than my sin. Lord, don't look at me like that, for I am naked, I am dirty, I am down, shattered, with no strength left. I dare make no more promises. I can only lie bowed before you. This guy had an understanding of, of the danger and the struggle with sin and how the burden of us trying to be, trying to attain something that we can't, we can't attain you know, I think so often we think of sin like we accidentally sin. I haven't accidentally sinned in 20 years. Um, and I do sin, just to, make, just to clear that up. <laughs> um, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. When I read that, I'm thinking, this guy was way smarter than me because I got to really think about what, this, what he's saying. And it is empirically, it is absolutely verifiable, it is undeniable, our depravity, how we will gravitate, embrace, choose sin, and how difficult it is. Intellectually, we don't want to admit it. Intellectually, we want to say that we're good and we can do things and we can, and we can improve and we want to do that. So I've asked my son to help me this morning this is Caleb, my oldest son. He, <laughs> he wore long pants to church, so that's something. <laughs> um, so this is, the, this is the scripture of the day. So it's the law of sin. Go ahead. Romans 7, 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. 
I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good, then, bring me to death? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Christ our Lord. Thank you, buddy. <clears throat> this is really one of my favorite scriptures, and partially because Paul is, is literally the greatest apostle of all times. He wrote two-thirds of the Bible. He, he was brilliant. He had the most miraculous conversion experience known to mankind. He, uh, he, he went from you know, murdering and, and imprisoning Christians to being saved and being all in all the time, and it was incredible. He, re- he actually brought the gospel to the Gentiles, so I'm sure most of us are Gentiles, so we have Paul to thank. But in this scripture, there's a little moment in there where he sounds like a moron, and I love it because it sounds just like I do when I do that sin that I didn't want to do. Why do I do that thing that I don't want to do when I don't do the things that I do want to do? How can I continue on? What do I do? And I love that Paul struggled with it. And I know that as Paul was reading this, you know, he's editing his letters because this was a letter to the Romans. So he's editing his letter because he's like, this is terrible. Should I leave this in here? And he's like, I forget it. I'm just going to leave it. And he sends it off and it becomes hopeful and it becomes great uh, for me to to be able to embrace, to know that Paul, the greatest apostle, um, the man that literally grew the church all over uh, Europe and, and spread the gospel throughout the world, the greatest apostle, struggled with this. This is the moment where he came to reality with his own sin, with his own wretchedness. There's a couple things that I wanna learn from this particular scripture um, before we move on. Now, this scripture we could talk about forever because we could literally talk for years on this scripture, but... The first thing that I want us to really recognize is that sin has an agenda. We think of sin as this, this ideal or this, this uh, you know, inanimate thing that we just gotta get away from somehow, some way, let's get away from it. And, but sin has a, an agenda. It has plans to destroy us and because it is within our nature. So just like Paul said, he didn't even think about coveting until he heard that you're not supposed to covet. Then all of a sudden he starts coveting everything and sin sprang to life. It seized the opportunity to pounce and to destroy. And, and Paul obviously had given into this sin at times because he didn't do the things that he wanted to do. Sin has an agenda and that agenda is to destroy us. That agenda is to bring us down. The second thing is our very nature does not stand a chance against sin. I know that often, I, 
we can be better people, we, and we should be. We should be continually working and pursuing on righteousness, on being holy, on being better men and women and, and all of these things. But eventually, if you get in the ring with sin, you will lose. So I was thinking like, um, you know, back in the day, I used to be in pretty good shape. I worked out a lot, pretty strong, a decent athlete, those kind of things. And I was like, but if you had put me into the ring with uh, Muhammad Ali or what's the dude, the Irish dude that's beating everybody up now? Yeah, Conor McGregor. McGregor. So if you put me in the ring with him on my best day, they would destroy me. I mean, maybe I could run around the ring for a little while. Maybe I could get away from him. Maybe I could not look directly at him and they would, and they would you know, something would happen. But eventually, eventually they would get a hold of me and they would kill me. And, and I, it's pretty hard for me to even admit that, but, but it would happen. And so that is what will happen if you get in the ring with sin, you will lose. Our nature does not stand a chance against sin because our nature is sin. And the last one is we must love the law. I know often we think of the law as a nuisance. It's kind of one of those things that get in our way of doing the crap we wanna do, of doing the stuff that we wanna do, of going the places that we want to, to go, of saying the things that we want to say. But really you have to love the law. You have to embrace the law because just like Paul said, if it weren't for the law, he wouldn't even have known what righteousness was. He wouldn't even have known what holiness was. How can, he wouldn't even, he would have been, you still fail. You're still not living up to the law, but you have to know it and love it in order to embrace it so that you have the ability to pursue it, have the ability to uh, get away from sin. There's a lot of things that we do here at the church that, I mean, I love it. I, I love this church. I've been in this church a long time now. Oh man, I forget this one little part. So at the bottom, you can barely see it. At the end, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. He had come to grips. He had come to face to face with his own sin, with his own inability to overcome that sin. And he had nothing left to admit, but I am wretched. And that is honestly the safest place we can be in this faith is the day that we can admit that the day that we can come to grips with that. I love this church. I've been going here a long time. And we do, we do incredible ministry at this church. You know, we, we do what a lot of churches don't do. We take people that are, that are broken and downtrodden. Maybe, they, maybe they, uh, they came out of an abusive family or they came out of some addiction or they came out of whatever negative thing that brought them here. And not many churches do that. Or they do it as like a partial part of their ministry, but that's pretty much our primary ministry is to meet people where they are, no matter what state of brokenness they happen to be, and try to build them up and try to restore them. Now, the reasons that big churches don't do that is because those people don't have any money, and you can't run a church that way. You, can't, you, gotta, you gotta have people that can, that can support those type of things, but we do it here, and we meet them where they are. And what we do is we tell them that they're good. They come from this, this place of utter brokenness and we say, you know, you're, don't listen to that. Forget that stuff. You're okay. You're good. You can do it. You can overcome. We tell them that they're lovely and we build up within them this, the, their value and their virtue. And what's the other one? I already did it again. Voice. There we go. So, and we build all those things up and we, and, we, and we do those things and it's an amazing ministry that we have. We tell people that they're strong and that they can overcome. They can overcome things of their past and the things that are, that are, that are in their way right now. And then at the end, we tell them, you're okay. Things are gonna be okay. And that's fine and it's incredible that we do it. And then once we do that, 
Then we have, we have like a whole, we have Northwest U, which is an amazing thing. We, uh, we do business conferences and, and it's all kind of thing. And we turn people maybe that were not that productive, maybe they're a little bit lazy, and we try to tell them, hey, hard work is a good thing. Hard work is a great thing. You should love it. It's, it's, an, it's one of the greatest things that God has given us. Uh, how to be a better father or a better parent. What can we do? We train them. We have classes, and, and there's this constant training. It's not just rescuing somebody out of, out of their weakness. We try to build them up and we try to help them to overcome wherever they might be. We try to make them more financially responsible and, and, and that they can be a more influential member, that if they have a job, that they can, they can do a great job at that particular occupation. They can make more money. They can become the boss. They can do all of these things and that's what we focus on. And then we also, hey, be a good citizen. You know, you can be a good citizen. I think one thing the one struggle that I have is that as we are focused on being better, on helping people become better, as you focus on being better, we forget the power of sin. We forget that the power of sin is there lurking and it is waiting for you to look away for just a moment so that it can pounce and destroy and it can overcome you and it can tear you down. Because what greater what greater battle can sin win than to have you pulled out, saved, strengthened, become a better person, and then just win again so that you fall again so that now you've got more people you can influence. Now, now you're, you're, there's really something to work with. <clears throat> Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like the one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Um, that center line there is a brutal line. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Do you understand the power of this statement? We believe that our faith or that our obedience or that our righteousness or our generosity or our kindness or our prayers or our patience, our gentleness, the joy that we have, we believe that that is somehow participatory in our salvation, that those things that we are doing make us more worthy of heaven, that we believe that those things are making us better, that we're better because of them. And we want to believe that somehow they affect our eternity. Or maybe we believe the reverse. We believe because, oh, I didn't do, such, I didn't do certain things. Like I, I waited until I was married to have sex. I don't do drugs. I, um, I don't have any addictions. I don't beat my wife. I don't lie too much. I, you know, there, there's all these things. And we think that that somehow, in some way, makes us righteous, makes us better. And the, we go back to the truth of the scripture, all of us, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our swinds sweep us away. Do you understand that your greatest act, your most righteous deed is nothing? It's wretched. Helping people to understand that they are lovely, freeing slaves, lifelong commitments to your spouse, healing the sick, praying for the broken, laying out of hands, preaching, keeping the commandments. None of them bring you into the, to what def, the definition of righteousness. None of those make you more worthy of salvation. None of them do anything for you. What a wretched man I am. Nothing, or that, would, that which makes us feel good or honorable or righteous, they're all nothing. They're all wretched. They're all terrible. Everyone feel horrible yet? Okay, good, because that's the plan. That's the plan. Hopefully we'll come out of that. I've been working through this for a few years, like I said at the beginning, and um, 
you know, I've, I've always intellectually been able to state that I know the good that I do or I know that my righteous acts don't do anything for me. They don't do anything for the state of my soul or the state of my eternity. But it's hard to really understand it. It's hard to really grasp it that, what do you mean? I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. How can that not help me? How can, that not, how can, that, how can I not be in front of the line of somebody else when it comes to salvation? Um, and so even though I could articulate it, it was hard to really grasp. So this last year, um, my son, Caleb, that was up here a minute ago, he volunteered to uh, help with the Special Olympics. And by volunteered, I mean my wife made him. Um, <clears throat> and so it's amazing how my wife will encourage us to do stuff and, it, uh, and we're better for it by the end of it. Um, so anyway, I didn't know much about this. I just knew that it was, it was for basketball. And basically, uh, the way it works is there were uh, athletes, which were, they were the special needs children. So there were three of those on a team. And then there were two partners and the partners were the people without special needs. So I didn't know anything about it other than I was proud of them for doing it. And that I had to pick them up late a couple nights from school. So it was kind of irritating. Um, but, <clears throat> but I knew that it was a good thing and it was worth it. And so finally the day came when for the big tournament, and it was a Saturday, and I was on duty that day f- to take kids places. And I went there, and, I, and I, we went into the gym, and I tell you, I was overwhelmed. It was the mo- one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Um, you know, there were kids with you know, mild to severe autism and Asperger's. There were kids, again, mild to severe Down syndrome, all sorts of, of just mental and physical and emotional um, struggles, just, just an amazing thing. And it was incredible to watch. There was parents on the side cheering for their kids and like it was the NBA finals. It was beautiful. It was incredible. And I tell you, I, would, I just started, um, I was just amazed and I began to thank God that my kids were all healthy, that my kids didn't have to deal with some of these things. I, I actually entered into a time of worship it was, I was worshiping God with all that was in me. It was probably the purest worship I've ever had other than maybe when my kids were born. And I was worshiping with all that was in me and I was thanking God. I mean, I wasn't like on my knees, hands raised. I wasn't doing the full, I wasn't doing the full show. But inside, inside it was real. It was realer than any worship I've ever experienced. And, and I was so happy and I was so proud that God had, had spared me the struggles that go along with that and spared my children, and that God had poured his grace out on us. And then for just a second, God said something to me, and he said, they're not a curse, they're a blessing. And I was blown away. I was so ashamed. This is the story I was talking about earlier. Um, I was so ashamed. I literally ran out of the building. I went from this moment of worship, of joy, of, of hope, and of excitement to being ashamed. This was literally the best thing that I have ever offered God, I think, in my life. And it turned instantly from the most beautiful thing that I had to offer to being wretched, um, uh, to being terrible. God wasn't trying to condemn me, I don't believe. I don't believe it at all that he was trying to make me feel bad or trying to make me cry or trying to make me get some exercise and run out of the building. Um, I don't think he was doing any of that. I think he was just informing me. He was just letting me know. 
He was just giving me the definition of the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. He was giving me this definition. And in my most holy moment, I couldn't even stand in the presence of a definition of God. And I ran out of the gym, and I, I, I held myself together long enough to get out of the gym, thankfully. And I went over in a corner, and I just sat at this bench, and I like wept. And I begged God to forgive me. I called my wife, begged her to forgive me. She didn't even know why she was forgiving me, because uh, I couldn't say anything. Um, and I was ashamed. And it was horrible. And that was the first time in my life that I understood when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, we think of poor in spirit being those that are downtrodden and those that are suffering or those that are actually poor and they don't have any of these things, but that is not what poor in spirit is. Poor in spirit is when you recognize that your spirit is nothing. It is wretched. and that you, there's nowhere left to go. It's like when Jesus was talking to his disciples, 70-something, or I don't remember the exact number, and he said, he said, unless you eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you can't be with me. And they're like, we're out of here, except the 12. And he said to the 12, why don't y'all go too? And uh, they said, we got nowhere to go. That's what poor in spirit was. At that moment, I knew I had nowhere to go. Nothing else could save me. Nothing else could restore me. And then, because God is so good and embracing wretchedness is so important, he just dumped a pile of grace on me. He just poured it out all over me. After I'd repented to my wife, and she's like, yeah, I'll forgive you. I don't, I don't care. And... <laughs> And then God had forgiven me, and I went back in, and I kid you not, it's the greatest basketball game I've ever watched in my life. It was incredible. It was like a spiritual basketball game. My son, some special needs kids that are absolutely a blessing, and it was incredible. And it was amazing. Earlier, I read a poem from uh, Michael Coist that he, or he, or not a poem, a prayer, sorry, where he was really struggling with sin and how horrible it was. And my prayers don't exactly sound like that. His, were, his was quite eloquent. Um, mine are not usually that beautiful. But there's a last part of that poem that I wanted to read. And um, so I want to read it now. And he said, come, come, son, look up. Isn't it mainly your vanity that is wounded? If you love me, you would grieve, but you would trust. Do you think that there's a limit to God's love? Do you think that for a moment I stopped loving you? But you still rely on yourself, son. You must rely on me. Ask my pardon and get it quickly. You see, it is not falling that is the worst, but staying on the ground. And so that's what God did for me that day. He shared a simple definition. It was as if I looked it up in the dictionary or went to dictionary.com, if that's still a thing, and found it and... And I was so moved and overwhelmed by the definition that I couldn't continue. And then he picked me up and he restored me and gave me an incredible day. When you embrace wretchedness, your own wretchedness, this is what will happen. You will fully embrace your desperate need for a savior. There's no other way. You'll still want to be good. You'll still want to please him because he's your father and you'll still pursue righteousness, righteousness and you'll still try to stop doing that sin that, that has ensnared you in your past, but 
and you'll fail again. And then God will restore you and you'll understand how desperate we are for a savior. Your judgment of those ensnared by sin will all but disappear. I know that as church folks, we do that. We see people out there living in, they're living in some sort of horrible lifestyle. They've made just stupid choice after another and they are just in horrible circumstances and we judge them. We can't believe that they would make such a stupid choice. We can't believe that they would live such a lifestyle. We can't believe that they would do that. And yet, we would just, and yet just one bad choice, one turn away from God and you'll be there. That's where you'll be. Once you embrace your own wretchedness, you'll be able to say like Charles Spurgeon said, but by the grace of God, there go I, because you'll know that you are this close. If you're outside of God's sight or God's hope in you, for you. Your judgment of yourself will be swift and severe. This one's not that fun. But your judgment of yourself will absolutely be swift and severe because, you, because we want so desperately to get out of that state of living where we are, out of that, as Christians, we don't want, we, we only want the new nature that God gives us. We don't want the old nature, but it's there. And until we are made complete in his presence, it will be there. And your judgment of you will be swift and severe, but the great thing about it is that it will make you run quickly towards your source of grace. No longer will your sin, will your wretchedness weigh you down, but it will point you towards your source of salvation, towards your source of grace. And then number four, you will become thankful. Finally, we're thankful. You will be thankful for every breath that you have, for the amazing wonder of your own salvation, for a God that is just with no justification for loving you, but he will love you, but you understand that his nature and his word requires that he loves you and his nature and his word won't allow him to stop. And so he loves you and it is incredible and you will be incredibly thankful for that. You will be thankful for the grace that has found you and desperate for it to find others. Um, I don't know where you are today. I don't know where on this journey you are. If you're one of those people that... Uh, is skipping through daisies and all that stuff. I don't know if I destroyed your world today. I hope not. But if you're one of those people that have, that bear the weight of this thing called faith and you can't bear it, you're not supposed to bear it. You're supposed to give it over. You're supposed to recognize that it's there and that you're weak and that you can't do it. And you're supposed to give it away. Um, I was listening to Ravi Zacharias the other day and he read a poem and it's a simple poem. An elementary school teacher wrote it. It's uh, anonymous. And the student said, or the poem reads, um, he came to me with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. So I took his sheet all spoiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried. Do better, my child. I came to the Father with a trembling soul. The day was done. Have you, knew a day for, have you a new day for me, dear Master? I've spoiled this one. So he took my day all spoiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And into my weary heart he cried, do better now, my child. We can still do better. We can be better, but we can never be beyond 
wretched or a filthy rag. We require it. And this is the beauty of the program that there is a new day waiting. That every day when we screw that day up, we can come to God and say, I blew it again. And he'll say, here's a new day. So as, as Paul said at the end of Romans, he said, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where thankfulness comes. That's where you're thankful every day, all day, no matter how terrible the circumstance, no matter how great your day, that's how you're thankful when you know that your wretchedness has been bought and paid for. So if you'd stand real quick, I would pray. I would pray. So I challenge you, you know, if you've been skipping through daisies and that's great, but you will face this someday and will you stay is a question. If, you've, if you bear the weight of your own sin or your own wretchedness all by yourself, stop. God did, Jesus did a whole bunch so we don't have to do that. We'll be able to say, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I thank you so much for letting me come here and talk, Lord, for helping me to, to find your will over the last couple of years so that hopefully we can save some people a few years. Father, we thank you that you have saved us from our own wretchedness, that we can't get away until you make us whole, until you make us complete. Lord, I ask for those that try to bear the burden of their own sin on their own shoulders, Lord, I pray that you would lift it. Lord, because you said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and that is what we're talking about. It's too hard to carry it by yourself. It's too hard to bear the weight of your own sin. And Father, you've taken it from us. So Father, I ask that today, we would be thankful, not because we got today right, but because you've got another day for us. Father, bring us close to you. Put hope in our hearts. If we need to be kicked in the butt in order to, to know how much you love us, Lord, do it if we need our hands held while skipping through daisies. Do that for us, Lord. Father, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched group we are. But you have said, these are my people. I will lift the wretchedness from them and they will change the world. So Father, help us do that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, have a great day.